service. Give the Lord a big wave offering of praise and thanksgiving. God bless you, Elder. Let's lift our hands and praise the Lord all over the house. Stretch them toward heaven. Throw your head back. Open your mouth and praise the Lord. He's worthy tonight. He's worthy. He's worthy. He's worthy. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Come on, let's praise. Hallelujah. Glory to God, glory to God, glory to God, glory to God, glory to God. I know it's camp meeting. But I also know that it's Sunday night. And there's something in the heart of a Pentecostal. When it comes Sunday night, it's just time to praise the Lord. Now, I'm planning on preaching. But I think it would be totally in order for just a few moments to just act like we're all right at home and it's Sunday night in the house of God. It's happening and the choir's singing and we're just enjoying Jesus. Well, I went to the enemy's camp and I took back what he stole from me. I took back what he stole from me. I took back what he stole from me. Well, I went to the enemy's camp and I took back what he stole from me. Now he's under my feet. He's under my feet, 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 he's under my feet. Oh, Satan is under my feet. Well, I went to the enemy's hand and I took back what he stole from me. Yes, I took back what he stole from me. I took back what he stole from me. Well, I went to the enemy's hand and I took back. He's under my feet, 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 he's under my
Bibles tonight. Open them to the very first book of the New Testament. 
Your Bible is divided into two segments, an Old Testament and a New. The book of Matthew is noted as the first book in the New Testament. Please go there to a very famous chapter, chapter 13, Matthew chapter 13. I want to say tonight how happy I am to be in this camp meeting. Give honor tonight to brother and sister Joel and Jan Holmes. Could talk a long time about this precious man and his precious wife. They are setting standards in every way imaginable. They are not just setting standards of holiness but they are setting standards of progress, standards of revival, standards of standing true without compromise, standards of good Holy Ghost Church. I'm telling you, God has raised these people up for this hour to be a beacon, to be a standard bearer in the middle of a battle when it's hot, smoky, and dusty, and people are dying. You can look around and somebody's got a standard held high says don't cave in keep on fighting i believe people came to this camp meeting because you knew that you would receive something from the lord and good direction from these good preachers that are preaching and god's going to bless you i love brother and sister Holmes so very much both of them are just well it's it's difficult to put in words how wonderful brother and sister Holmes are their family sister andrea and brother roger Brother Nathan Holmes told him I was so proud of him last night. I almost popped the buttons off of my shirt. Telling you. Also give honor tonight to Sister Agnes Holmes. Many, many years this woman has labored faithfully in this field right here. I don't know how you were affected this morning. But when she stands and begins to talk, it touches something deep inside me. It's more than words. Some of the most precious memories I will carry with me when I leave Little Rock or North Little Rock, as some of the good saints instruct me to say. Um, <clears throat> they draw that line of deep marcation, but Little Rock's had a little bad name, and I kind of want to reestablish its credibility. So... That's why I just throw it out there that Brother Holmes' train is long enough to even incorporate and cover Little Rock with all of its bad deals. Everything about Little Rock is not bad. Everything about Little Rock is not sinful. That's right. So one of the most precious memories I will have as I leave will be the memories of time spent with Sister Holmes. She's told me about revivals and miracles and things that have happened. And I'm excited to have been here and made that acquaintance. And then there's, of course, the elder statesman. You just heard from him a while ago, Reverend Burr. There's only one Reverend Burr in the whole world. Nathan Holmes told me personally when they made his grandpa, they broke the mold. There will be no more. So if you haven't met him, see him after church. He will have something very unique to say and his good wife, Sister Burr. And to this local church, I want to say thank you not only for the past few months, but for this camp meeting. Those of you that just arrived, I assure you there's been a lot of preparation this week. 
They have worked and worked and worked and worked and worked all week long to make your stay a blessing. And this church is to be commended. All of you that are visitors here and are enjoying this camp meeting, why don't you give this local church a good round of applause? Would you do that? get to preach on the same night as my good friend brother Springer my 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 what an honor what a treat I enjoyed his preaching I was with them longer than I should have been he kept me way longer than I was useful to him but I had a wonderful time Biloxi and get to be with him tonight is wonderful I appreciate brother white this morning he took all the burden off the rest of us preachers when I walked out of the building I said thank you Jesus the pressure is off that message was so good this morning that if you don't get anything else, you got your money's worth. There ain't no pressure on nobody else the rest of the week. You got your money's worth this morning. Amen. Preachers last night, Brother Adams, Brother Richie, Brother Nathan Holmes, Brother White, all of them, God bless you. Matthew chapter 13, good to see my family. I know they drove a long ways to be here tonight. My sister, I appreciate it. I'm going to try and preach to you tonight exegetically, and that's my weakest area of preaching. I know that it is. I've argued with the Lord about this all week, but I feel like this is what I'm supposed to do. To preach an exegetical message means you take a small piece of the scripture and try to open it up to greater understanding. It's difficult for me, but I'm going to try tonight. Matthew chapter 13, if you would look at verse number 45 and verse number 46. Every one of you in here tonight are familiar with this passage of scripture that complicates my task even more verse 45 again the kingdom of heaven is likened to a merchant man seeking goodly pearls who when he had found one pearl of great price went and sold all that he had and bought it my subject tonight is simply the pearl. The pearl. Would you bow your head? Jesus, in all my years of preaching, I've never felt more helpless than I feel right now. I've never known that I needed your help more than I need you tonight. God, this is too big for me. I need your help. I need your anointing to make up the difference. I need you to span the gap. I need you to create the tapestry tonight. Weave the threads, the colors, the design. I'm asking you to do it tonight, God. I'm asking you to put it in the hearts of young people, Lord, the greatness of your kingdom. I'm asking you to reestablish it in the minds of people who have walked with you for many years. Let them walk away from this camp meeting knowing that the kingdom of heaven is the pearl of great price. I ask you to baptize us with anointing. Crown this service, Lord, with transforming power of the Holy Ghost. Crown this service, God, with people getting what they need from you. Your children are needy and they're hungry tonight, God. Come in this place. Hover here. Reign in this place with the power of God and the glory of your anointing. Hallelujah. Don't let one need go unmet. In fact, God, let us gather up the fragments when we're finished and say there was enough for all and plenty left over. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Shake hands with somebody around you and tell them that the guy needs your help tonight, so help him preach. Would you do that?
I know I've got some friends here, so. <laughs> and then you may be seated. God bless you. When Jesus began his public ministry, we know that there were several periods of his life that are unaccounted for. We have biblical records of his annunciation, records of his birth, and then the Bible enters a time of silence. There is a very brief shutter flick of the camera that captures him at 12 in the temple reasoning with the learned rabbis and scholars. And then once again the curtain is drawn and we don't see him again for some 18 years. The subject of that 18 year hiatus is of course much debated. Some believe that he even went so far is to journey into other countries as far as Persia some commentators and historians believe whether that's true or not I don't know but we know that when he began his public ministry it was at that time that several men took it upon themselves to chronicle his life it's not a true biography for they are not trying to write the story of Jesus life they are simply writing according to their individual intent Matthew, the book that I chose to read from tonight, selection of scripture that I have read in your hearing, was a man that was writing to prove that Jesus was the Messiah to the Jewish nation. He is supported by Mark, who many scholars believe was dictated to by the Apostle Peter. That's why Mark is such an enjoyable book. Mark is the New Testament gunslinger he doesn't approach things casually like Matthew and Luke in Matthew and Luke you don't get a miracle till the fourth chapter in old Mark's book he draws his gun and fans it three times in the first chapter you get three miracles in the first chapter I've told this to some of you before but 42 times in his book he uses the hurry up adverb adjective straightway I mean it mark is a hurry 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 that's why so many people think that Peter indeed did dictate to him his book. So you got Matthew writing to the Hebrew, you got Mark writing to uh, the Gentile world, and then Luke coming along and doing his writing, and then John doing his. And these men supported each other in what they said. They, they complimented one another. And we get a very brief sketch of the life and ministry of Jesus. It is my opinion tonight, it is my opinion that when Jesus embarked on his public ministry, that his original intent, or at least his original effort, his first try, if you please, was to reach the entire nation. We could quibble about this. We could argue and debate long about his foreknowledge and what he knew. And possibly he knew that they would reject him. But this chapter 13 of the book of Matthew signals at the beginning of chapter 13, the beginning of the second year of the ministry of Jesus Christ. It was at this point in Matthew 13 and 1 that there is a major shift in the ministry of Jesus. In the first year of his ministry, he is opening his arms to the entire nation. You can study it and read it for yourself. 
There is no selectivity at all. He speaks to one and all. His arms are open to all walks of society. To the high and the mighty, the rich, the famous, the scribe, the Pharisee, the member of the Sanhedrin. Makes him no difference. He speaks to one and all. When he spoke the Beatitudes, he was not selective in who he spoke to. He was reaching uh, for the whole nation, hoping that they would embrace the concept of a Messiah. But there were those in his society that couldn't handle it. They wanted a Messiah that would unseat the ruler of Rome. They wanted a Messiah that would throw Pontius Pilate out of the country and reestablish the glory of the pre-Babylonian years. And so they said, this cannot be our Messiah, for they're looking for a carnal Messiah. And so Jesus, in the second year of His ministry, makes an absolute, unequivocal, definite turn in His preaching. And that's when Matthew 13 and 1 comes into play. It is at that point in His ministry that He recognizes, I'm not going to get them all. And so I'm going to get what I can get. And He begins to speak to the Ecclesia in the Ecclesiola. That means He speaks to the people that are called among the called. Yes, the nation of Israel were God's chosen people at this time, but he realized some of them were going to reject him. And so he reaches in to gather out of the called out nation, the ones that would be the called out ecclesia or the church that would come. The way that he does that is he begins to use a method of teaching that was not new. It does not originate with Jesus. The use of parables had not only been used in biblical times for many centuries, you can read it in the book of Isaiah. You can read it in the book of Psalms. The most famous use of the parable in the Old Testament would be the moment that Nathan came to David. And David had sinned with Bathsheba. And Nathan came to him with a little story. A parable, if you please, about a man that was a traveler. And he came to the house of a rich man. And the rich man had many herds and many flocks. But he reached over across the fence of a poor neighbor that had one prized lamb. And he took that prized lamb and he offered it as a sacrificial uh, meal to his traveling companion. And David became very irate and angry. And judgment fell uh, from the lips of David only to boomerang back on himself. That's the most famous use of a parable in the Old Testament. But it was not a new thing. Parables were not only existent in the time of the Old Testament, but they were also in existence around the world. You may remember a man by the name of Aesop. His name means timeless one or the voice of time and Aesop of course used many parables the difference between all of those and Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ used the method of the parable to his perfection it was his method to reach the masses his miracles attracted them like flies to honey but it was his parables that gave them everlasting truth now when we get to talking about parables there are some cautionary flags that have to be raised especially in the eyes and the minds of zealots among Pentecostal people. Number one, let me warn you tonight that never in the history of the Bible has a parable ever been used to prove a doctrinal point. That is not the purpose of a parable. Jesus never used a parable to speak about doctrine. If you try to use a parable to prove a doctrinal point, you will find error and you will get off. The point of a parable is to illustrate truth. 
It's to give truth to one person and withhold truth from another person. So when Jesus came to this juncture of His ministry, the second year of His ministry, when He wanted to push away the scribe and the Pharisee and the Sadducee, but He wanted to at the same time reach out and embrace people and birth them in the purpose of His kingdom, He began to use the ministry of parables. He would speak to one and they would understand. And the learned doctors and lawyers of their day, the scribes that poured over the Torah and every nuance and every little jot and tittle, they couldn't figure out what He was saying. And the local fishermen went home and said, my, didn't we have church? And the local doctor and lawyer went home and said, He's a madman. I can't even understand what He is saying. That was the purpose of the parable. That's why He used it. It was the method that he employed to substantiate his ministry. Now, all three synoptic gospels use the parable. John doesn't. He's a maverick. You know what? If John lived today, he wouldn't be in the UPC. Praise God. He was a maverick. He just went his own way. And uh, <laughs> he just went his own I'm in UPC, so that's why I said that. But anyway... Ah, praise God. Brother Hard and I almost got in trouble already and I just started preaching. But anyway, John, he didn't talk about parables, but Matthew, <laughs> boy, I got the preachers listening right now, I'll tell you that for sure. Might even sell a few tapes out of this deal, I'm telling you right now. <laughs> Matthew, Mark, and Luke all use the story of the parable they illustrate it not equally I liked what brother white said today true men of God don't ever mimic somebody else they are themselves mark only has one parable in his book that the others don't have and he only shares three parables in union with the other two writers Matthew and Luke Mark doesn't have time to fool with stuff like that. He's too busy telling about all the stuff that's happening. So we really have to narrow it down when you understand the parables of Jesus, their scope and magnitude and import. You have to narrow it down to the book of Matthew and the book of Luke. For many, many years, the book of Luke was my favorite book of the New Testament. I didn't even know why. But as I got older, I figured out why. Luke is a wonderful writer. He has 18 parables in his book that are not recorded in the other writers. He shares two common parables with Matthew, but he has 18 singular parables that are not recorded anywhere else. Luke was a physician, and you never separate the man from his message. It's impossible. We see the coloring of the man again and again in the Bible. And this is nowhere more obvious than in the writing and the selection of Luke and his parables and Matthew and his parables. Luke was a physician. His parables speak of people. Always people. Always the detailed person about the relationship of an individual. That's why we like it. He writes parables about uh, uh, the lost son. He writes parables about an unjust 
judge. He writes parables about a rich man and Lazarus. And being the good physician that he is, he draws the point and makes the point that he was full of sores. He always brings out the medical side and he always deals with the personality involved because he was a physician. When you look at Matthew, he was a tax collector. And he writes more about money than any other New Testament writer. That's what he includes. When he writes, he writes parables about talents. When he writes about men working in the vineyard and nobody else wrote about it. Matthew remembered it because he saw it through the eyes of a tax collector. And he said they all made a penny. I don't know what the penny had to do with anything. But Matthew saw it and it was in his mind. And so he said, you know what? I'm going to write this parable down and I'm going to talk to them about parables. And so you have 18 in the book of Luke written nowhere else. And you have 10 in the book of Matthew found nowhere else. I'm going to just preach tonight out of Matthew chapter 13. And I'm going to preach in particular just about this one parable, the parable of the pearl. But I have to give you the backdrop to make the parable understandable. For the parable to have import, for the parable to have meaning in your life, you have to understand the context in which the parable is set. For it is the background that always determines the parable. Let me give you an example or two. If you remember, there was a time that Peter came to Jesus. And he said to Jesus, How many times should I forgive my brother? No doubt feeling very magnanimous, very spiritual, and very forgiving. He said, Seven times? And Jesus spoke unto him, no, not seven times, but seven times seventy. And if you read right on down, he then illustrated it with a parable. The parable is an absolute directive that says about forgiveness. When you read that parable, it's not difficult to understand the scope. It's not difficult to understand the background. The whole purpose of the parable was to explain forgiveness. Let me give you another case in point that you might be more familiar with. You remember the story about the prodigal son, one of the most beloved and preached stories of the Bible. We misapply the scope of the parable at times, for the Bible plainly lets us know why Jesus spoke that parable. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes were on Jesus' case. He had been receiving sinners. You can read this in Luke chapter uh, 18, I believe it is. And he had the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees were on his case. They weren't liking what he was doing. Sinners were coming into his house. Sinners were coming into his presence. He was cavorting with people that didn't wash their hands and didn't obey the Sabbath and they didn't like it. And the Bible plainly lets us know that when they put the pressure on Jesus, and said, we don't like it that you're cavorting with sinners and we don't like what you're doing. The Bible says he spoke to them the parable. And we get caught up in the sun because we don't understand the purpose of the parable and we don't understand the scope of the parable. I'm preaching to you tonight the scope of that parable is the forgiveness of the Father. I understand the value of the Son. I know that He was wayward and I understand all of the ornamentation of the parable. But you hear me tonight. The purpose of that parable was to tell the world it doesn't matter how dirty you are. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter if you got cocaine in your blood right now. It doesn't matter if you drink booze today. It doesn't matter if you're living there more right now. Come on to the Father. He's ready tonight. But if you don't understand the scope of the parable, if you please, if you don't understand the backdrop of the parable, 
you miss the main point of the parable. For there are two things about a parable that are important. Number one, what I just mentioned, the scope. How far-reaching is this parable? What is the breadth, the height, the depth, the length of this parable? What is the dimension of this truth that is being spoken by Jesus? I gave you two examples. One of them was the depth of forgiveness. And Jesus gave a parable. That's the scope of the parable. The other one I gave you was the prodigal son. The scope of the parable is the loving father and the forgiveness. The second area that you have to deal with in dealing with parables are what commentaries, scholars, and historians, and rabbis say. I'm going to use two words that I've coined for this meeting tonight because I've never talked about this before except I've studied it in private. But I'm going to call it the bark and the core. Now, there's fancier names, and we could get into the, the real uh, classy ways of saying it. But for this meeting tonight, it's the bark and the core. It's the ornamentation and the scope. It's, it's what is it in the parable that is just decoration. But there's a lot of things. And one of the reasons that you cannot use a parable for doctrine is because you will get caught up in the ornamentation of the parable and get sidetracked. And another reason is you can never truly understand a parable. You can only understand its scope. I'll give you a case in point. The first two parables in Matthew chapter 13 are the parable of the sower. Sower went out to sow. Some seed fell by the wayside. Some seed fell on stony ground. Some seed fell among thorny ground. And some seed fell on good ground. And some brought forth 30, 60, and 100 fold. You remember the parable. But in the very next parable, which is a coined parable, which is an interlocking parable in the same chapter, he talked about the seed being sown and an enemy coming in and sowing tares among them. You remember that parable. Now in the first parable, the seed was the Word of God. But in the very next parable, it tells us that the seed was the children of good and the tares were the children of the wicked one. I believe he did it on purpose. I believe he did it to let us know you don't base your doctrine on a parable. You base your doctrine on the epistles. When you look at a parable, what you're looking for is what does this thing have to say to me on a big scale? What is the scope, the background, the backdrop of this parable? In particular, I want to talk to you tonight for just a moment on the series of parables in Matthew chapter 13. It was the moment in time, as I've already told you, when Jesus took the step the unmistakable step of turning his back on people that didn't want it and started teaching his disciples. You can read in the chapter. They came to him and said, why did you do this? He plainly tells them so that you will understand and they won't. The word parable in its verb usage form means to be laid side by side. It's to compare two items so that you will understand it. And what you find in this chapter it's not only seven parables that use that technique, but you find three pairs of parables that also complement one another. For instance, I just mentioned to you that the first two parables are in relationship to the seed, the sower and the seed, the four ways that it was sown. The complementary parable, the second one of the chapter, has to do with the seed and the tares. 
The next two parables, and I'm fixing to pop somebody's balloon here, and I'm sorry to do that, but you really do need to get the scope of it. The next two parables were the parables about the leaven and the mustard seed, showing, again, connection, showing something small that's going to grow, showing something that begins very little but is eventually going to have major impact. Again, typifying the kingdom of heaven and its broad generality and its scope. And these seven parables, Jesus shows you a panoramic view of all time. He shows you the inception of the kingdom. Some take it, some reject it. The next phase where some grow up and there's tears growing up with it. He shows you the season of the leaven. He shows you the season of the mustard seed. And then he goes on to the treasure in the field. And then the parable of the pearl. And finally the parable of the net where the good and the bad are drawn and then discarded. And so you have not only the parables, but you have the parables in tandem as well. The second parable concerning the measure of leaven. I know, and this is where I'm going to pop somebody's balloon. I'm sorry. But that parable does not speak about the Trinity. I have heard it all my life. People get up and say, well, that three measures of whatever is Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and they're all in one, and we'd shout and talk in tongues. That's fine. God bless you. But you're caught up in the ornamentation of the parable. You are caught up in the decoration of the parable, and you are missing the real point of the parable. If you study the measure, it isn't talking about a measure of flour. It's talking about intellect. It's talking about knowledge. It's talking about learning. I'm fixing to preach about that in just a few moments. But what he was saying this kingdom of heaven is not just destined to the boundaries of Palestine this kingdom of heaven we're going to put it in three measures and it's going to fill the earth the scope of this message the scope of this parable is the kingdom of heaven it's too big for Palestine it's too big for Jewish hands it's going to explode in a Gentile world then you get down Parable 5 and 6, which is the focus. What I want to say tonight. Beautiful parables. Love these parables. The parable of a treasure hid in a field. The beauty of this parable is the guy that found the treasure wasn't even looking for a treasure. Now remember, it's joined in parabolic fashion with the pearl. Treasure hid in a field represents all of those people that find God that weren't even looking for God. You say it didn't happen. Oh, yes. Over and over and over. I can tell you about a woman that picked up a water pot to go to a well to draw water. She didn't have a Messiah in her mind. She didn't even recognize it when it was there. She just went to draw water. Jesus said, what's going on in your life? Said, you've had five husbands. The one you have now is not your own. Jesus was the seventh man in her life perfection. He came to somebody that wasn't even looking for him. You know why some of you have a right to shout? Because he found you when you weren't even looking for him. You weren't reading your Bible. You weren't trying to find God. He walked out somewhere and brought you into the house of God and you got a right to shout tonight. 
No, I'm not going to settle for that and let you sit there and look at me like that. Let me tell you again, you got a right to be here tonight because he found you when you wasn't even looking for him. Why don't you lift your hands and thank him for it right now? Thank you, God, for finding me when I wasn't even looking for you. When I didn't even know you were around. I didn't even know who you were, God. You came to me. You found me at the well of life. God bless you. you may be seated. The beauty of that parable is the treasure hid in the field. That parable is characterized by extreme joy. I'm going to tell you something. Don't you look down your long Pentecostal blue blood nose at a new convert. Fixing to get in trouble right now. Sit back because you got the song memorized. Sit back because you've heard it about a hundred times. But last week they were in the bed of sin. Last week they were doing drugs. Last week they were lost without God. And with joy they found a treasure that they weren't even looking for. And they're going to run. They're going to shout. They're going to praise God. They weren't even looking for him. And he came anyway. Oh, that ought to make somebody happy tonight. I wasn't even looking for him, and he found me anyway. You may be seated. I'm not going to try and overprove my point, but in case there be a doubting Thomas and you're not so satisfied with one supporting argument of the woman at the well... I could throw out the thief on the cross. He wasn't exactly looking for a Messiah. <laughs> but lo and behold, one got nailed right next to him. <laughs> he wasn't even looking for one, and here he come. We could talk about a lot of Bible characters. I know most of them were Gentiles. But the scope of this parable is that it reaches out and tries to tell you what the kingdom of heaven is all about. And he tells us there's going to be people in this kingdom that don't even know who he is, don't know where he's from, can't quote a scripture, didn't go to Sunday school, ain't never been nothing but a lousy sinner. But I went and found them and I brought them into the house of God. They're like a treasure in a field and they've got joy. Treasure in a field. Treasure in a field. It's tandem parable. It's complementing parable in this series of parables that give us the panorama of the kingdom of heaven. From the sowing of the seed to the seed in the tares to the leaven to the mustard seed to the treasure in the field. The tandem sister parable is the parable of the pearl. The reason the pearl, and I'll come back to the pearl, but let me say this. The reason the pearl is important because it embraces the other side of the argument. It embraces a man that was absolutely looking for what he found. 
He was in the market for pearls. And he found the pearl of great price. So if you're sitting here tonight and you don't feel like you have a reason to praise the Lord because he didn't find you when you weren't looking for him. If you're sitting here tonight and you were a good Baptist before you became a Pentecostal and you're sitting here and you came through some other journey where you were looking and looking and looking and looking and looking, you still got a right to praise him because there's a parable for you. It is the parable of a man that said, I went looking for pearls and I found a pearl that was better than any other pearl. It is the pearl of great price. I think I'll praise him for the pearl. I think I'll praise him. I found what I was looking for. Oh, you ought to praise him. You ought to, if you got breath tonight, you ought to praise him. One of those parables is your parable. Ha <laughs> ha. I found what I was looking for. I found what I was looking for. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> By now, those of you that know me know that I love this book. I love this book. <laughs> you college students. Those of you involved in higher learning, even kids going to public high school, don't you ever sit in a classroom and hang your head and be ashamed of being a Christian. This is the pearl. This is the treasure. I don't want to hear about Emerson. I don't want to hear about Chaucer. I don't want to hear about Shakespeare. I don't want to hear about literature. I don't want to hear about great writers. I want to tell you that the 40 men that picked up the pen and wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost and coined this book and wrote 66 books of the Bible, it's the best-selling book that's ever been written. And it ain't just because it's a Bible. It's because it's a literary masterpiece. It is not wrong. It is right. You ought to love your Bible. You ought to love your Bible. You ought to want to study it for the rest of your life. God bless you. you. May be seated. So, down to the parable of the pearl. The pearl. You have to understand the backdrop, or you don't get the full impact of the pearl. If you walked,
to a pearl merchant's place of business and ask to see a pearl. What they do is they lay out a piece of black material, usually black velvet. And then they go and get their prized pearl and they place it on that cloth. They want you to see it in its backdrop. They want you to see its color, its shape, the translucent beauty. You see, a pearl is not a gem in the sense of other gems. A pearl is not a true mineral like a jade or an agate or chrysophysis or one of those others. But a pearl is a mineral of sorts because it is formed by internal change. It literally takes the guts out of its maker. I know it comes in mollusk. You know that. But the pearl's beauty is best seen when you place it on a backdrop. So please allow me for just a few moments. I won't bore you with all of the details. But let me give you the backdrop of the parable of the pearl. I'm going to say some things tonight that might cause a little question. But hear me out before you make your final judgments. We tend to view the Bible as good Christians. Much, and this is an insult, I don't mean it to be, but it is. Much like the Jews did in New Testament times. We feel superior. We have our biases, our prejudices when it comes to other people. But I'm going to tell you that in the days of Jesus there were a lot of things that were already in existence in the world. And I'm not being insulting to God when I tell you that Jesus did not invent or originate everything as a man that you find in that Bible. As a matter of fact, as you study the life of Jesus, he was very willing to reach back and pick up things that were already existent in the world. Just because it's not in your Bible doesn't mean that it wasn't there. He coined a phrase. That is, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. We credit that with Jesus. I hope I'm not insulting you tonight when I tell you that Confucius said that 500 years before Christ. But Jesus didn't mind rephrasing it and refinishing it and using it. See, that, that went down sideways with some of you, but hear me out because you've got to understand the backdrop of the pearl. Jesus did not mind doing that because he closed this series of the parables by saying every scribe that is an householder knows how to reach into his bag of goods and bring out something that is old and something that is new. He knew what was in his world. And when he spoke of a pearl, it had more meaning than just this physical specimen of mineral substance. Do you understand? There was a phenomena 500 and some odd years 
before Christ. I do not understand it. I confess to you I do not. If you're here tonight and you do understand it, I'm serious. Come to me after church and explain it to me. In the world before Christ, in the 6th century, it's like all at once, all over the world, men began to wake up to truth and knowledge that still influence us 2,500 years later. We'll just say this over here is Greece. And this right here is Palestine. And this right here is the Asiatic peoples of the Eastern world. 500 years before Christ, this group of Greeks began to come to an awareness and began to learn things that still impact us today. All of this is the background of the pearl. This is the cloth that Jesus was laying this parable on. He was letting us know that Greece, I appreciate what you came up with. Yes, you have discovered democracy and ethics and law and astronomy and biology and physics. Yes, the roll call of Greeks coming down through that century are marvelous and they roll off the tongue of men like a long list of heroes Plato, Socrates Aristotle, Alexander the Great, you could get into the sciences with Zeno and Epicurides and Epipedes and all of the other men that come out of that, what I don't understand is how all over the world all of a sudden knowledge starts cropping up, it hits in Greece it hits in Asia, it hits in the Palestine area, I don't understand it but I'm telling you if you'll study history it happened 500 and some odd years before Christ, Greece rises to this level of knowledge. It's incredible. It still affects us today. In the Middle East, they were in Babylon. But still, the level of understanding and revelation is unparalleled. You've got men down in captivity. One in particular by the name of Daniel that sets his face to seek God. And God unveils the panoramic future of the world. Shows him the 70 weeks. Shows him the nations that are going to rise and fall. It's unparalleled in the history of the world. The knowledge that comes out of Palestinian background. And then over here in Asia, you've got the men that shaped and formed a whole world. You've got, first of all, Lao Tzu. Who wrote the book? Where's Jerry Cox? There he is right there. Me and Jerry are buddies. We both reading the Tao Te Ching right now. The Tao Te Ching is, you didn't know Jerry Cox was that sophisticated, did you? Man's awesome, I'm telling you right now. The man is awesome, I'm telling you. One of these days, me and Jerry Cox going to sit down and drink coffee and discuss the Tao Te Ching. Yes, yes, yes. Lao Tzu wrote the Tao Te Ching, second most read book in the history of the world. Go ahead and snow your nose up. Go ahead and act like it didn't have anything to do with you. And let me remind you that last week in the USA Today, there are record numbers of Chinese moving into America. We can sit on our padded pews and act like it doesn't have anything to do with us, but somewhere we need to realize Jesus said, this gospel is bigger than Palestine. This gospel is bigger than your Pentecostal mentality. Somewhere we've got to hold this pearl up and realize it's big enough to affect the whole Greeks, Palestinians, and Asians. Baal writes his book. That book is the foundation of Chinese thought and has been for the last 2,500 years. Twelve years later, Buddha's born. Siddhartha Gautama. He's born goes and sits under his little tree for 49 days 
Righteous four noble truths, an eightfold path of truth. Some of you studied in school. You can look down your nose at it if you want to. All the forms of Zen. I've tried to read it as much as I can. Can I understand as much as I can? But the fact is, this knowledge was hitting the world and understanding. And then 12 years after Buddha was born, Confucius was born. Lao Tzu was a personal reformer. Buddha, a religious reformer. Confucius, a social reformer. Let me tell you how powerful Confucius was. He was so powerful that the words that he wrote were etched in stone in every provincial capital of China. And until the communist people took over just a few years ago, every civil servant took a test administered in the thinking of Confucius. It has colored every fact of their life, every fiber of their relationship, every way they think about family and people. And all of this is happening in our world at the same time. And you think Jesus didn't know this? Do you think Jesus didn't understand this? You're going to tell me that Jesus didn't know what was going on? Let me make two more points and then I'll conclude my sermon tonight but you hear me yes Jesus knew because in 336 BC there was a man by the name of Alexander the Great that marched out of Macedon and started a world empire he fought three great battles one battle opened the door to Persia and his nemesis Darius and he defeated him the next battle opened the doorway to Egypt and he founded the city of Alexandria and named it after himself one of 70 and the only one that has survived ancient history when he was through with that he marched to the Indus River in India and opened up the door of the Orient. For the first time in the world, those three societies were now bridged and the world began an interlocking and an inter-understanding. Hellenism went to the East and all of the teachings of the East came to the West. You say, what's that got to do with me? I'm telling you that because when Jesus spoke His parables, He wasn't just speaking to those 12 men. He was speaking to the future generation of the church that when we look at that pearl, it's not just the pearl of our church. It's not just a pearl to be compared with Trinitarianism. It's not just a pearl to be compared with Charismatics. It's not just a pearl to be shown off to a Baptist or a Catholic. This pearl, let me tell you, when you get this pearl, it is the pearl of great price. In the Eastern, in the Eastern world, their symbol for power their symbol of power their symbol of divine intervention is a dragon how many of you have ever been to a Chinese restaurant have you ever seen a dragon raise your hand if you've been there and seen a dragon they everywhere they love dragons to the Chinese dragons symbolize divine energy just give me five more minutes of your mind please and the ancient way of displaying the dragon in this eastern culture that was bridged by Alexander the Great finally even more so by the Roman Empire with the systems of roads economy common language etc Paul preached to a world that had been shrunk in the last 500 years. Paul preached to a world that in A.D. 47 there were no churches in Asia, Macedonia, Mysia, and Galatia. But 10 years later in A.D. 57 he could turn his eyes towards Spain and say that he had evangelized those four regions and there were thriving churches all over the place. 
Paul was a man. He was not a Palestinian Jew. Peter was, John was, James was. Yes, the original 12 were Palestinian Jews and had all of the biases and the hypocrisy of the Jewish people. You can read about it in Acts chapter 6 when they couldn't even decide over who passed out the bread and who got the Kool-Aid. It came up in the church. But Paul, cosmopolitan Jew, trained at the field of Gamaliel, one of the most learned rabbis in the world, a genius of his day was able to go into a Hellenistic world and take the gospel of the kingdom to somebody that didn't even know who Abraham was. More and more we're facing a generation that wasn't raised in Sunday school. Didn't you tell me while ago that you have a large population of Vietnamese let me tell you something if you win them to God they're not going to come out of the Catholic Church they're not going to come out of the Baptist Church they're going to come out of the Buddhist temple that's where they're going to come from and what you got to get in your mind is this revelation is this pearl it's not just a pearl among Christianity this pearl is a pearl for the whole world to look at kingdom of heaven is likened to a man a merchant man someone who traffics in profit seeking goodly pearls forgive me if I say that he was an intellectual he was looking for pearls because the pearl represented transformation to the eastern mind when they pictured their dragon it always had a pearl in its mouth because they were saying with divine intervention you can change they didn't know God they didn't have the Hebrew oracles all they knew to do was the best they could they came up with some pretty fantastic stuff believe me even without God they came up with one concept of void and emptiness. They said, unless you empty yourself out of everything, you'll never have any measure of God. Kind of like repentance. You understand what I'm talking about? They had enough sense to know that if you got ego and you got pride and you got self-will and you're in competition with your brother, you're never going to get anything from God. And so they came up with this, this man looking for understanding in the realm of God. And it happened all over the world. And they symbolized it by a pearl. You're going to tell me Jesus didn't know that? You're going to tell me Jesus didn't use to have that as a backdrop? When he spoke the parable of the pearl, Jesus said it's like a merchant man seeking goodly pearls. Trying the way of the Tao. Trying Zen Buddhism. Trying the way of a Hindu. Floundering in a world. New age. Psychology. Social ideas. Everything that our world is caught up in. But Jesus had enough wisdom to take this parable and extend it out there. And the true scope of this parable is it's not just a pearl in the midst of Pentecostalism. It's not just a pearl in the midst of Christianity. He said this pearl is the pearl of great price. I'm not one bit embarrassed to talk to a Buddhist. I'm not one bit See, some of you think this is nonsense, but you hang around a few more years, they're going to live next door to you, and you're going to talk to them about Jesus Christ, and they'll look at you with a blank look on their face, and they won't have any idea who you're even talking about. 
One billion people have never even heard the name of Jesus Christ. Communism is a lock on their land. Why did I choose to preach this? Would you stand with me? Lift your hands and thank the Lord right now. Lift your hands and love the Lord right now. Let's thank Him. Let's thank Him. Let's thank Him. Ask Him to help you be a light right now. Thank you, Jesus, for speaking to us. Thank you for confirming your word tonight, Jesus. Could I tell you just one or two more things? Maybe if you could just stay there right where you're standing with your eyes closed and listen to me. I'm not finished tonight and God's not finished. Please don't leave yet. Just hold on. Not only did they have the concept of void, they spoke in dualism. I don't have time to preach everything tonight. But your Bible is full of dualism. Jesus incorporated the old and the new. When he finished this series of the parables, he spoke of the scribe, the householder that brought forth both old and new. Paul was a master at dualism. It was he that spoke about victory and defeat in the same breath. It was he that coined the phrase, having nothing, yet possessing all things. That's classic Taoist terminology and that's offensive to some of us but let me tell you why it's not offensive to me that tells me that 500 years before Jesus came men were sincere trying to find God floundering around trying to find him they came up with the concept of void empty yourself out then you can only receive that which comes from God they came up with a concept of light that our vessel must be transparent because the more you possess of this world's desire the less the light can shine through you that's their concept of light so you have to get rid of competition you have to get rid of self-ego you have to get rid of, of enmity and feelings toward other people and their whole point was to live in harmony with the world man was a microcosm and the universe was a macrocosm they even taught things like as your blood flows through your body the streams flow to the ocean on and on I could go they were trying to find God 
They found some measure of truth. They found the void issue. They found the light issue. They found water issue. 500 years before Jesus, before John ever picked up his pen and said, Out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. They spoke of water. The Tao, the yin and the yang. It's not a sexual symbol. I'm here to tell you, it symbolizes the power of heaven, the power of earth, and all the balance in the universe. I'm not here to preach their doctrine, but I'm here to tell you, it is symbolized by water. Because water can flow anywhere. Water seeks the lowest level. Water represents humility. And they believe that by giving in, you eventually win. It was Jesus that picked up the theme and said, Turn the other cheek. It was Jesus that said, The power of water is likened to the power of the Holy Ghost. That out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. And Almighty God in His infinite wisdom reached down and created a Grand Canyon in the United States of America to let you see the power of water. That if you let the water flow, it will break down any barrier. It'll wash away any rock. It'll take any hard spot out of your life. Why don't you let the Holy Ghost flow in your life? Yes, it's only water. Yes, it's the softest element in the universe. Yes, it is. But it will win. It will overcome if you let the water flow. To me, the beauty of this parable is that Jesus knew all of this and was not embarrassed to say, All right, you found a pearl. That's wonderful. I don't deny that you found a pearl. But when you place that pearl next to this pearl, you're going to say, I gotta have the pearl of great price. And you can't have a pearl collection. Jesus was letting them know the scope of this parable is the world. It's the scope of people that are seeking after truth. When they find this pearl, it is the pearl of great price. But to have it, it costs nothing, but it costs everything. And you hold it in your hands tonight. The pearl of great price. And it still represents transformation. The greatest power to change in the universe is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've read Taoist doctrine. Some of it's pretty good stuff. Some of it I like. I read one the other day I really liked. It said, if you don't care what somebody thinks, you'll never be their prisoner. Ooh, I like that one. I wrote that one down. It's not that they don't have anything to say. It's not that they didn't stumble on some kind of understanding of human nature and how to get along with your brother. But it's that, sir... If you're a pearl merchant and you're truly looking for the power to change, I'm going to show you the pearl of great price. The pearl that you don't reform yourself by good habits. You don't reform yourself by a psychologist's couch. You don't reform yourself by AA and man-made ideologies. You reform yourself by the water of change. It flows out of your inner belly. And it washes away the hardest places of your life. And 
until you are totally changed into the likeness of Almighty God. Eyes closed, head bowed, I'm holding up to you tonight the pearl. The pearl. The pearl of great price. I really didn't want to preach like this tonight. I wanted to preach like Nathan Holmes, high-stepping. But the Lord laid this on my heart. I couldn't get away from it. Brother Cox was so kind to have me come preach three days down there last week. I was in his office. I couldn't get away from it. I just cried and cried and cried. I said, God, why are Pentecostals chasing cheap thrills? Why are they chasing the thrills of Hollywood? Why are they skirting the edge of all this world's entertainment? Why are they going after the things that will not satisfy when they hold in their hand the pearl of great price? When they've got the greatest thing the world has ever been given? Why? 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 Why are they cheapening it by going after that stuff? <laughs> Cannot tell you how grateful I am to Joel Holmes. And Jan Holmes, Sister A.L. Holmes, and the church of First Pentecostal Church for building this building and this edifice to show us that Christianity is not one whit behind the Buddhist shrine. We're not one whit behind the finest, most noble buildings of the world. Thank God somebody had the vision to say that we possess the pearl of great price. Brother Carney's not here, but Brother Wallace, please go back and tell him for me. Thank you, Brother Carney, for building a, be a beautiful building down in Mississippi to let the world know that all Christians aren't poor. Our pearls are not inferior. We have the pearl of great price. And lastly, I say to you tonight, there are people standing here with their head bowed and their eyes closed that came to this camp meeting with a need in their life to be transformed. They are weary. They are tired. They don't know if they can go much farther. They drug in here and put a smile on their face, but they're hurting down on the inside. There are marriages that are hurting here tonight. There are physical maladies in this building tonight. You paid a price just to come to this service you're seeking transformation could I tell you it's not always in medicine could I tell you it's not always in the practicing physicians of this world could I tell you that the pearl for endless ages of man's wisdom has represented total transformation by divine intervention and if you can get divine intervention in you tonight you can walk out of this building totally changed transformed because we have the pearl of great price. Could I tell you if you're here and you're wrapped in sin. Those holes can be broken tonight. 
you can stretch your hand toward heaven and pray to a father. And the parable of the prodigal tells me he'll run to meet you. He'll come tonight. He's already got a fatted calf. He's been sitting on the porch waiting for you a long time. He's been looking down a long dusty road waiting for you to come. Oh yes, my Bible tells me I can't make a doctrine out of it. But I can get the basis of the truth. I can reach down and get the scope of the parable. The father is waiting. He's waiting. He's waiting. Come. You just can't get to this altar tonight. But I believe there's people in this building tonight that want transformation. That want total change under the power of the Holy Ghost. I'm asking you to reach up your hands right now if you do. And ask God, give me that pearl of great price. Give me that transforming power. Give me divine intervention tonight. For Jesus said, this is the pearl of great price. It costs you everything, and yet it costs you nothing. The beauty of it is anybody can have it, and yet the beauty is it costs everybody the same. Stretch them out, stretch them out, stretch them out. then reach out and touch the person next to you and begin to pray for them reach out and slide your arm around their shoulder say change my brother change my sister give them what they're after Lord give them what they want in the Holy Ghost give them what they want Lord Holy Ghost move in here right now Holy Ghost changing transforming power of God come in this building pearl of great price would you come in the scope of the pearl I'm telling you it's in the scope of the parable he'll do it tonight he'll reach to the end of the earth if you're not even looking for him he'll find you come on reach out to him right now reach out to him somebody's going to get what they need tonight somebody's going to get a touch from almighty God tonight Oh, oh, come on, let's seek the Lord. Change me, Jesus. Change me, Jesus. You can use anything, Lord. You can use me. Change me, Jesus. You can use anything, Lord. You can use me. It's working right now. It's working right now. She's being changed by divine intervention. By the power of the Holy Ghost. The pearl of great price is being applied to her life right now. Go ahead. Keep praying. Keep praying. Holy Ghost is in this building. This is the way you end this Sunday night. You end it with an altar call. You end it with a desire for people to be touched by God. Touch your Jesus. Touch your Jesus. Come on, reach out. The pearl of great price. It's in the scope of His kingdom. Take my hands. Take my feet. Take my heart. Speak to me. Go ahead, go ahead. He's looking for the pearl right now. She's looking for the pearl right now. Come on, I know it's camp meeting, but their lives need the touch of God. Lord, you can use me. Jesus.
If you can use anything, Lord, you can use me. You can use me, Jesus. Take my hand, Lord, take my feet. Touch my heart, Lord, speak to me. If you can use anything. 